Hey, Brian. Hey, Dan. Hey, listeners. Welcome to the 71st episode of The Goods, a film podcast. Except we're not just a film podcast this week. Well, we sort of still are because it's a theme month. We're kicking off a theme month with a very specific twist. And that twist is Young Adult Adaptation Month, by which I mean films that adapt young adult novels, presumably novels. I guess there's YA nonfiction. I'm not sure. But films that adapt YA novels. Just some reminder for our listeners background if you're new. We try to do theme months every now and then to kind of shake us out of our routine a little bit and give us maybe a little bit of more structure and focus for a month. We've done two theme months prior to this. So this is the third theme month. So the first one we did was, I think, last February, we did Time Loop Month. And then I think it was July, maybe we did Circus Month. That's right. Circus Month. That's what it's been so far. So this is Young Adult Month. I guess. Y-A Month. Y-A-M. Yam. Yeah, yeah. What's your take on yams, Brian? I love yams, although the definition is a little loose because what Americans call yams are apparently not true yams. We we just call sweet potatoes yams because that's what we decided we were going to do at some point in the distant past. Uh, apparently, though, like uh, African yam experts would make a distinction. Interesting. Okay. Like what? They're eating in that book we read in high school about uh, Nigeria. Uh, things fall apart. I think Okonkwo farms yams, and that's a different thing. It's not the same thing as a sweet potato. Okay. There's a distinction. Gotcha. Yeah, I never liked sweet potatoes until I turned like 30. And I, I've come around pretty hard on them. I can just eat a baked sweet potato with nothing on it now. Yeah, that's one of my favorite sides. My brother has never liked them, but I enjoy them. So... One recurring aspect of our theme months, and we've done theme months the same way that we do movies, where I pick one and then you pick one, and now I've picked one again, is that the the person who's kind of hosting, the person who picked the theme month, is presenting a challenge to the other. It's it's not something in the wheelhouse of the other, not something that the other necessarily signed up for. It's something they got told they're going to do. Yeah, so there's like a, a home field advantage. Right. So... I was all in on time loops last year and you kind of tagged along and I think we ended up with some fun picks then. And then for circus month, I hadn't thought about circuses like intentionally in decades maybe. And so that was interesting to, to really engage with the concept of a circus and all of the different ways it could be de depicted in films. But that was something that was more up your alley. So now we're back squarely in Dan territory. I think we can safely say, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think some of your past selections would fall into this category as well. That's right. And this is actually, I didn't go back and check the records, but I believe the third YA adaptation that we're going to talk about, which is to say prior to YA month, there were two films, both of which were picked by me, that were YA adaptations. So it's clearly something for me. So. <laughs> Well, we had uh, Paper Towns and, and what else so far? Cirque de Freak. Oh, right. Well, that's a little of both. That's true. You know, that was a Circus Month pick, solidly. 
That's interesting. I didn't even think about it that way because it was squarely in Circus Month, but also a YA adaptation. And then I, I think Zombies, the music, the Disney Channel original musical is based off of a teen focused graphic novel. I don't really know if graphic novels fall under the umbrella of YA. I'm not a publishing categorization expert. I think if you had brought it, I probably wouldn't have pushed back against it. But I'm planning to only pick prose fiction for the for this month. Yeah, I wonder if like any decom necessarily fits into the the YA. Like, are there are there decoms that would fit? I guess we'll find out as the month goes along. I suppose. Yeah, I considered bringing zombies three to the table expecting it would drop like the others on valentine's day but apparently that's not the case it's coming out later in 2022 at some not yet specified date so maybe they actually listened to the podcast and took our advice and it'll be coming out in october we'll have to see i'm sure that's exactly the reason they're listening to our, to our podcast but so one thing we like to do in these theme months is at the beginning of each episode opine a little bit on the theme and so this week, the kind of the first YA month selection, I just wanted to share why I thought this was something that would be interesting and meaningful for me to pick. And then also just kind of give an overview of what we mean by YA, young adult fiction. So it's come out in our discussions that I once had and kind of still do have a real fascination and almost obsession with coming-of-age stories. And this has been a film thing for me. It's also very much been a book thing for me. Uh, I read a lot of young adult books shortly out of college when I got back into reading. And I think I spent a lot of time in my life thinking why this appealed to me at that point in my life. And I think it was a couple of things. So YA novels, it, just kind of up front, they are targeted. So here's what Wikipedia says they are. They're a category of fiction written for readers from 12 to 18 years of age. While the genre is targeted at adolescents, approximately half of YA readers are adults. So these are books written with teenagers in mind, and almost always the, the characters are teenagers. So why is this something that's kind of appealed to me, especially when I was exiting my that exact age range? And I think there's kind of two reasons. One is that... I kind of missed the newness of life experiences for the first time. I was separated from it, so I had a little more perspective on it and was kind of missing the, the firstness of everything. First loves, first major life challenges, first big decisions that are going to carry over for the rest of your life. Encountering all these things that are going to shape who you are, I think it was just very appealing to me. And I think on the same note, this is something that me and the other co-founder of our old blog, EarnThis.net, Grant, have talked about a lot over the years. As you get older, I don't know if this is true for everyone, but certainly true for me and many of the people I've known. The older you get, the harder it is for your emotions to go particularly high or even particularly low. It's like your your emotions are much more stable. We talked a little bit about this. I, I don't think it was on the podcast, but tangential to the podcast, um, we, we've talked a lot about what are our favorite movies and like the idea of a canon specifically of 100 favorite movies and what would be in that. I wrote one out when I was 23 
and it has a lot that have been favorites for a long time. And as we've delved more into movies, I think a recent uh, commenter or reviewer on Apple Podcasts said that we go deep on movies on this show. There's been discussion, what would enter the canon new? What, what have we talked about recently that would enter that pantheon of 100 favorite films? And my response to Dan was, well, you know, it's hard for something new to come in because I just don't feel as intensely about things recently. Right. I agree. I, I th I'm glad we're on the same page on this. And I, I'm the same way. I mean, it's hard for me to react emotionally the same way to experiences the way that I did when I was 12 and 15 and 18 and even 20, you know? So I, I think part of my attraction to these kinds of stories, particularly when I was entering a phase of life that was very stable, it would just kind of hooked me. I don't know. But there's worse things to be than very stable, as we'll see in <laughs> today's film. That's right. Yeah. And just to kind of close the loop on YA and its kind of definition here for a second before we pivot out to it's kind of a funny story this week's selection specifically, the kind of bordering genres or age brackets are typically called middle grade. So that's ages eight to 12. So that's before YA. And then new adult is kind of, I don't think that's really locked in the same way that YA and middle grade has. I think publishers tried to make it a thing because 18 to 30 year olds buy a lot of stuff, but new adult you sometimes see listed as ages 18 to 30. New adult sounds like a easy listening genre on the radio. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to new adult 98.9 playing your jazz favorites. Something like that. Yeah. I wonder if Seb from La La Land would like or dislike that station. Probably dislike it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. He's playing a little too fast and loose with what jazz is. And I just, out of curiosity, I looked up as of today, as of the recording of this in February 2022, what are the best-selling young adult novels? Because it is a category recognized by New York Times bestseller list. So the two best-selling one in hardcover and one in paperback are One of Us is Lying by Karen M. McManus, and They Both Die at the End by Adam Silvera, which I have not read either of those. Uh, my wife has read One of Us is Lying, but I haven't read that one. So that's best-selling like right now or all time? Right now. Okay, cool. The best-selling ones of all time, it depends, first of all, whether you count Harry Potter as young adult. Because if you do, then seven of the top eight are Harry Potter books. And then you get to a couple of classics like The Outsiders and what's the guy who stream of consciousness? James Joyce? No, not that one. <laughs> Holden Caulfield. Oh, okay. Catcher in the Rye. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that makes a little more sense. <laughs> and The Fault in Our Stars by John Green is up there too, which I think is maybe the seminal contemporary young adult book of the past 20 years or maybe just the past 10 years although man that came out 10 years ago now that's another interesting thing YA or sorry Wikipedia makes a distinction in YA of a subset of those as coming of age or problem novels which tend to deal with contemporary characters who are facing challenging life situations so I mean the book we're going to talk about today definitely there 
Fault in Our Stars, definitely there. Um, the Hate You Give was a big one from last year that dealt with racism. That was a big one. So yeah, those are the ones that I read more of than the genre ones, like the dystopian, you get Hunger Games and Twilight. Um, but I read some of those too. Thank you for letting me monologue there, Brian. Oh, no, you need to lead us into the month. So thank you for that. So as I mentioned, the selection this week is it's kind of a funny story. Now, this was directed by the directors who often collaborate, Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck. Um, they had one other pretty well regarded. I think Half Nelson is the name of the movie. I'm just going to double check that. Yep. They kind of were big in the quirky indie scene from the, the late 2000s, early 2010s. And again, this came out in 2010 and I, I saw it in theaters. And it is based off of a book that was written by Ned Vizzini. I think it's Vizzini, not Vizzini. It's two Zs. That book came out in 2006. So this was a scenario where I watched the movie before I read the book. There are going to be other ones we discussed this month that I'm going to pick at least one other one where I read the book and then saw the movie. And I think it's a very different experience to go from book to screen as opposed to screen to book. Yes. You said you did. You said you did read the book first. No, this one, I actually watched the movie first. Oh, okay. And then I came and read the book. Yeah, that's definitely different. I, I feel like when you do it that way, well, how, how to say it's like if you read the book first, you notice all the stuff that is cut out of the book when it makes it to the movie, but you notice that less when you go the other way. Uh, at least in my experience, it's like, yeah, that, that movie did a pretty good job of, of capturing the book. Also, Vizzini was the uh, Wallace Shawn character in The Princess Bride, the one who says inconceivable all the time. His name is Vizzini? Interesting. Yeah, I don't know if I don't know if Ned Vizzini did the same thing. I don't know. In, said inconceivable a lot, you mean? Yeah. Like that? Yeah. I don't know. It could be. Yeah, so this movie was really important to me. In fact, it it was a mo movie that we've mentioned for birthday movies. We try to pick something special. And the route that I went for my first birthday episode was to pick a movie that kind of helped get me into animated movies. And I was considering picking this as a, a movie that helped get me into teen dramas and comedies, coming of age movies. Because this was kind of one of my gateways to that. I, I watched it and it really resonated with me and made me feel some sort of way, as they say. In part because there's a lot of I relate to in this book. Uh, this book is about mental health. It's about a boy named Craig who contemplates suicide and envisions himself doing so. And then instead of committing suicide, and I read recently, you're not supposed to say committing, commit suicide. You're supposed to say die by suicide. So... Uh, rather than kill himself, uh, Craig checked himself into a mental ward, a, a psych hospital where he underwent some perhaps life changing experiences, which we can talk a little bit more about. And yeah, this book came out in 2006, four years before the movie came out. It's a pretty long book. The hardcover clocked in at 500 pages. So here we're going to I'm going to hit something now, Brian. Uh, I, I kind of hinted at this last week. OK. My plan is, I'm not guaranteeing this, but my plan is to try and read the book associated with the movie each of these weeks. So I did manage to reread this book this week. It was my first time reading it since I first read it back in like 2011 or something like that. 
So I did mention to you that I, I was not expecting you to do the same. All right. So we haven't officially discussed this yet outside of the just now. So uh, I did not come to the table with this one ready. Uh, no guarantees going forward. I might try. I might. We'll see. Gotcha. I'm interested in the in the next one at least. So so maybe going forward, now that I know that that's what you're gonna do, I, I might do the same. Gotcha. Yeah. So I did reread this one, and I found my impression to be very different of it than it was in 2010. This is actually a book, uh, a book and a movie that I have reviewed on our old blog EarnThis.net, and. Some of my impressions that I apparently wrote about for both the movie and the book, extremely different to, to how I felt this time around. So it's safe to say my opinion has has morphed somewhat on on this book and this story. But there's a couple more things that I, I just want to bring up before we dive into the movie itself. And then I'll bring up some of the things that are the same and some of the things that are different in the book versus the movie after we kind of recap the film. But one is that uh, Ned Vizzini actually based this on his own story when he was, I think, either an older teen or in his younger 20s. He checked himself into a mental health hospital when he was feeling suicidal, and he's always been pretty open about struggling with mental health. So he has a interesting and ultimately tragic life story. Yeah, he was always open about it. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I don't want to make this... There's a, a podcast I loved that I've mentioned before, The Anthropocene Reviewed. And one thing, it's it's by John Green, another connection here to YA World. It's a podcast by John Green, a great young adult author. But he, one thing he says in an episode where he talks about a friend who died, he said, I don't want the death of this person to be a narrative device in my story today. So I am just going to say up front that this person died. And so I'm not going to be silly or dramatic about it, but Ned Vizzini passed away. He, in fact, killed himself, which adds a intense layer to this story, I would say. I don't know if resonance is the right word. It's like a dark version of resonance to it. Mm -hmm. He was age 32. He was at his parents who he grew up in New York and his parents lived in New York and he climbed to the top of his parents' apartment building and jumped off the, the building. And, and that was in 2013. And this was a celebrity death that got to me because I don't think Ned Vizzini is like one of the generationally great young adult authors. I think he's very good when he has something authentic to say. I've read three of his books and by far the best is it's kind of a funny story when he is just being a goofy, funny writer. He can be funny, but he's not great, I would say. So it's not like necessarily sad because it's the loss of a genius necessarily, it, or at least sad, like specifically in that dimension. You don't talk about Ned Vizzini's death that way like you do, you know, true artistic geniuses who die at a young age. And, and so that's not really how I think about his death is like, oh, the world lost this this great artist. But to me, the fact that he was really open about his mental health and honestly, you know, he wasn't the best selling author in the world, but he found himself in a place of success, wrote some really beloved novels. I mean, it's kind of a funny story, frequently appears on greatest ever YA book lists. The Wikipedia page notes that NPR selected it as the number 56 greatest young adult book of all time. 
uh, when they made a list a few years ago. And it got adapted. Uh, he was really well liked. He had a lot of friends. He had a, he was married and had a kid. And I don't know. So like in some ways, he was someone I kind of aspired to, like someone who had a good voice and was able to get it out there, but not necessarily because he was like a savant level genius. He was just a interesting person who who worked hard to make things in the world and speak truths about himself and. I don't know. I is someone that I always felt like I could have been friends with if I had ever met or spent a lot of time around or something. And, you know, I just listed all the things that could have been good about his life. And I think one thing that take away from it's kind of a funny story is that people who seem like they're good on the outside are not necessarily doing good on the inside for any number of reasons. Oh, definitely. I don't know. I still feel like people don't give enough of a shit about Ned Vizzini and his death. And I can't even really articulate exactly why this one stopped up my heart a little bit when, when he passed. And even when I think about it, it still does. I started writing an essay for Earn This last year when I was the same age that Ned Vizzini was when he died. And how, on the one hand, I can see a lot of the things he might have seen. And on the other hand, I he's it's anyone who suffers that way is a bit opaque. And how I can't see that and how it just makes me sad that there's all these people in this world that I, I can't see the things and the way they're seeing them. And it's one that stuck with me. I don't know. Both the book, the author, the author's life story. I, I listed this book and movie together as one of my quote unquote top 100 favorite things. When I made a list of 100 favorite things, pieces of media and creators of media across all different formats, uh, different mediums, whether it was books or movies or music, etc. And I had a, it's kind of a funny story somewhere on there just because it's one that really resonated with me. Um, yeah, I don't know. The last thing I want to say, and then I want to hear if you had any kind of preconceived notions or, or things that kind of connected with you in this book, Brian. Sure. The last thing is that this was one of the first books that I read when I got really back into reading around 2011 or so, 2010, 2011, 2012. I think I probably read this one in early 2011 after I saw the movie. And it, so it kind of kicked off the reading aspect of it well. So I also think fondly of this this book and this movie because of how it got me excited about reading again. And so and I'll be honest, I reread the book. I read it in text form, not an audiobook. And I honestly, it's been like a year and a half since I've sat down and physically read a long form fiction novel from front to back and it felt really good to do it again. So, yeah. So a couple things to hit real quick. I used to read all the time and the last few years, I definitely have not read as much. So this might be a good excuse to actually knock out some books. Ned Vizzini. I did not know much about other than I do recall reading your article at one point about it being one of your favorite things, this book especially. Although, subsequently, I, I guess I'd kind of put that from my mind. Some of the things you wrote about in that series, I actually did track down and consume because you wrote about them. Like, I picked up a Real Big Fish album at a yard sale. I listened to that. I tracked down The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon. That's a really good book. Haven't gotten around to, like, a full listen-through of the Beatles discography. Uh, maybe that's due at some point. But uh, trust that I did read them and at least consider all the things he wrote about. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, 
I had it's kind of a funny story at number 96 of my 100 favorite everything back when I wrote that list in 2014. So there you go. Anyways, continue there. Oh, yeah. Well, this movie did have a resonance for me. It was clear that it was like autobiographical. And then I I looked up what ultimately became of Ned Vizzini. And it's like, you know, dark echoes. Clearly, he was troubled for a long time. This was not a person that I had previously felt a connection to, just because I didn't really know about him and his work. I will say, though, that a celebrity death that hit me really hard came the next year in 2014 when Robin Williams killed himself. So it definitely is possible for the the creative people, and especially the, the people who put forth like a comic persona, that they can have dark stuff going on under the surface. Yeah, I, I think Robin Williams is an interesting comparison. I, I know he talked a little bit about his uh, mental health some, but he is an interesting one because his, I mean, he's known for being, you know, I mean, everybody knows who Robin Williams is and what his his movie persona was. And I think it was very sad and powerful to a lot of people. I don't know if powerful is the right word, like, something illuminating on on the different ways that mental health can affect us that someone who seemed to be the goofiest and most carefree could be suffering in that way for sure and then this movie i i felt a connection to it recently because the last year i've been working in hospitals installing communication systems and around christmas time like all through December, I was working in a psych ward. That That's the only time I've been in, quote unquote, in one so far. But it was kind of intense. Uh, and I'm going to just be kind of sprinkling in anecdotes as we cover this movie of, of how it related to th- the real thing. Uh, not having been a patient, but working there day in and day out for several weeks and, and seeing it firsthand. Um, have you ever been in a facility like this, Dan? I have not. So I will be grateful for your perspective because one thing just to be upfront that I struggled with, and I mean struggle with not saying that it wasn't, but I legitimately was like tussling with this concept of how realistic and authentic the depiction of mental illness, especially severe mental illness, is in this story. Right. Well, I'll, I'll say I'm not an expert. But just just a bit of firsthand experience and that uh, when I went to this place, I, I was kind of in a dark headspace already because I had been working with a buddy of mine over at a different building, a, like a building still under construction for about six months. And then I guess I was standing on my ladder wrong in an unsafe way. And so the Randall from Recess dude, this spy representing the higher-ups like the uh the general contractor who was in charge wrote me up for being unsafe and then i couldn't be on the site for a couple weeks so they sent me (laughs) they sent me to bedlam they sent me to this oh god asylum (laughs) almost as like a disciplinary action (laughs) then i gotta like every time you go in you gotta swipe your card and the big door unlocks and then you go back in there and uh, just like in the movie it's like one long narrow hallway and the warning was that they gave us was like you can't 
misplace any screws or screwdrivers or anything. You gotta always keep an eye on your tools so that like nobody sneaks away with something and you know eats a nail or or shivs you or somebody else and I, I I just wasn't feeling good the, this couple of weeks and I was like very on edge and I I don't want at any point during this episode to sound insensitive to people undergoing treatment in these facilities just that I know I didn't want to be there and I, I'm sure there are others there who don't want to be but again I was not a patient so I'm sure that they do have value just as a you know a more um physiological medical treatment would for someone having a disease of another part of the body. Right. And that that last thing you said is something that is emphasized a lot more in the book than it is in the movie is kind of really thinking about what depression actually is. And yeah, I mean, well, we'll get to some of my thoughts on like what I think is really noteworthy and important about this book in some ways and this this movie, I mean, the story in general. But Understanding depression, not as, you know, being bummed out or sad about things, but as like a physical chemical imbalance in the brain. It's an, it's an important thing to understand when you are encountering this kind of material. So I, I want to say that I'm not an expert, too, and, and I'm sure I'm going to say something insensitive. I probably already have. And just like Brian, I, I definitely do not mean any disrespect or disparagement to anyone who's who's kind of doing this. And I just apologize in advance if I either laugh at something I shouldn't laugh at or, or say something in a way that, that shouldn't. And if you hear me do so, listeners, please call me out on it because I'd like to learn as well. So, Yeah, show us you're out there. Yeah. <laughs> I almost made a crass joke about voices in our head. That would have maybe been an example of something that you call out. So, yeah. so I'm ready to, to jump into this movie and I'll have a couple more reflections as we go. Uh, what about you, Brian? You ready to kick off Young Adults Month. It doesn't roll off the tongue the same way as Circus Month. Yeah, I'm ready to jump, yeah. Here we go. So, it's kind of a funny story from 2010. Opens with 16-year-old Craig, who is played by Keir Gilchrist. So, Craig dreams one night of climbing up Brooklyn Bridge, and ultimately, what becomes increasingly clear as a dream, kind of falling or jumping off, and we learn that it is indeed a dream and it's a dream that a recurring dream he's had of, of killing himself, but this time it feels more real than ever. And so he wakes up very early in the morning and scared with his suicidal thoughts. He, he bikes to a nearby emergency room. So I guess, Brian, had you had any previous experience with this actor, Keir, Keir Gilchrist? No, this was not somebody I was familiar with. How would you describe this actor? Uh, he has dark hair. He's a youngish guy. Um, I I don't know. What are you getting at? What are you probing for? I don't know. I, one thing that I don't know if it bothered me, but I just had trouble seeing is he he seems pretty mellow, and I wasn't getting a lot of uh, like intense despair. Yeah, no, not too much darkness or intense despair out of him. I think intense despair, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's that's fair. There's like a lot of quirkiness in this movie. Yeah. And I wanted to like understand whose quirkiness it was. It's like, 
the way that Craig is telling the story? Is this something that comes from Vizzini or the filmmakers? And like, what's really happening at any given moment? Because there's there's so much that's stylistic. That's a good call. Uh, you see it even from the beginning with this dream sequence. It's not all that over the top. No, but it's like a little silly because he's about to jump off the bridge and then like the sister pops up or the mom and they're like, well, what are you going to do with your bike when you jump off the bridge? Right. And it's like, it's a brand new bike. And his dad is Jim Gaffigan. And I'm sure we'll bring up the dad again. But like just a goofy, good natured, clean comic. And yeah, like the family is there. And that's what kind of tips us off that this isn't reality. But like being reminded that his family cares about him and will miss him is what uh, pulls him back from the brink in his thinking. Yeah, I agree. Some of the casting here is excellent, and some of it are good actors and actresses who just, I couldn't click with the character fully. And I think Jim Gaffigan as the dad, who ultimately gets portrayed as kind of this somewhat detached, but also still like kind of high-pressure and judgmental dad, I, it was kind of peculiar casting for me. Yeah, it didn't click for me like the overbearing dad in Dead Poet Society. I was much more intimidated by that guy than by Jim Gaffigan. I think we'll get a couple more Dead Poet Society connections as we go here. But when Craig gets to the ER, he goes in and he meets Zach Galifianakis, a character named Bobby in the waiting room. And he's dressed in scrubs. I think we're supposed to think that maybe he's a doctor, but he's giving off very non-doctorly vibes. And he like just kind of banters with Craig and asks him for cigarettes and stuff. But this this whole gimmick about being dressed in scrubs is going to be a, a recurring thing here. So how much have you seen of Zach Galifianakis, Brian? I like Zach Galifianakis. That's what I'll say up front. Yeah. I saw him in The Hangover, like probably everybody else. Uh, I did see The Hangover 2, which one is one of my least favorite sequels, because it was just identical to the first movie again in a different setting. Mm-hmm. So so I've not seen The Hangover 3. I think the other one that I've seen Zach Galifianakis in is the movie Due Date, which, a quick tangent, uh, my brother showed me the movie Due Date. Apparently at some point he had an iTunes gift card and he used it to download the film due date, which is like basically a remake in all but name of planes, trains, and automobiles, but with Robert Downey Jr. And Zach Galifianakis instead of Steve Martin and John Candy. That's a great one. Not, I haven't seen due date, but planes, trains, and automobiles is a great one. That would be an interesting one to look, to watch at some point due date. But the the premise is shifted a little bit. Instead of Steve Martin trying to get back for Thanksgiving dinner, Robert Downey Jr. is trying to get back for the birth of his child. And goofy Zach Galifianakis is holding him up. But because it was the only film that my brother had on his iTunes account, he's watched it like 12 times. (laughs) And I've always thought that was kind of funny. Like, what a weird movie to be the one that you watch all the time. Like a random movie, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but what about you what, what what's your basis in zach galifianakis the hangover was definitely my introduction to him the one that i most think of though is did you ever watch the series of web shorts between two ferns with zach galifianakis 
I just know that obviously he's the the star of that, the host, but I haven't watched much. So it's like a parody of talk shows and it's super duper cringy. They're, they're like they're playing it off as a real interview with Zach giving these asking these horrible questions of different actors who are usually there to promote something. So it like plays it off as a real interview where they come and promote something, but it like always unravels and is hilarious and also kind of cringy. But they've had some really big pulls. They had like Bradley Cooper, Will Ferrell, Steve Carell, Ben Stiller, like tons and tons of comedians. And then they got, while he was president, President Barack Obama appeared on Between Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis talking about his Obamacare. This was like around the time that Obamacare was uh, was debuting. And they were like, what a pull. You do have a little online sketch show and you get the president of the goddamn United States to come onto your show. Yeah, anytime you have a sitting president show up in your show, I have a lot of respect for that. Yeah. So I think you should watch some of those. I think he's really good here. Like, spoilers, he's going to be on my good things list. Yeah, he's terrific in this movie. This is the most dramatic I've seen him in a film, like playing a real ass character with stakes and actual emotions that really resemble a real person and not just like a clown, you know? Right. Yeah, you get to see him in a a couple different states. It's not quite Jim Carrey in uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, but it's maybe halfway there in terms of a comedian doing some real dramatic chops. He He's still very funny in this. He's got a lot of comic relief in it too, but it's definitely interspersed with some real drama. Mm-hmm. So Craig meets Bobby. And then when he goes into the meet, the actual doctor of the ER, he pleads with the doctor to admit him to the hospital because he quote unquote wants to be fixed. And he thinks maybe he could get a special pill or they can do something to him. The film version of this, it works better in the book for me because in the movie, it's like he wants a pill. But part of the thing is he stopped taking his medicine. So I don't know. I mean, I know that you're not when you're in this state, you're not exactly thinking coherently and that's fine. But I didn't quite get his motivation to be pleading to go into the the ER. And maybe that goes back to the fact that Kirk Gilchrist really does not strike me as that dark and brooding. I don't know. Mm-hmm. He does get admitted, though. Yeah, I, this was the point where I, I wanted to, like, shake him and be like, don't you know that this is going to, like, have ramifications? Initially, the doctor says that he's just going to recommend him for the outpatient program. Like, we'll see you, you know, a little bit each day or something. You come to the hospital and then you go home after that. that sounds great. Yeah. And he says, no, I need something more than that. And then he gets something more than that, and he immediately has a problem with it. It's like, well, what did you think was going to happen? <laughs> Didn't you ever read Cuckoo's Nest? That's the other thing. Like, that that was my background to stories set in mental health facilities, was in senior year of high school, we had a whole unit reading uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in English class. And I think we only watched, like, half of the movie. So that was what was in my mind working at a place like that and and then i was also thinking back to that story here right yeah i think a lot of reviews at the time basically called this some variation of one flew over the cuckoo's nest for the tumblr generation or something like the twitter generation Mm -hmm. because it's it's got that same approximate structure of someone finding themselves in mental health hospital because indeed 
Right. No, no over the top evil nurses in this one. That's true. Uh, the caretakers are all largely benevolent in this film. So the the doctor does admit him, and yeah, right away he learns it's a five day stay minimum. So he's not going to be getting out. He's not going to be getting a magic pill and then going home. He's there for a long haul for the better part of a week. And you're right. It's kind of jarring how he's immediately trying to back out of it after he had just a scene earlier been like pleading to be admitted. But yeah. But as with Cuckoo's Nest, we get to meet this psych ward filled with a really colorful set of characters of of patients, Um, all a wide array of states of mental health, I would say. Some of the notables, well, we learned that Bobby, who Zach Galifianakis, who he met in the lobby earlier, is in fact a patient here. So he's depressive. And he we kind of talked about this, but he flips between playful and sarcastic and really dark on a moment's notice here. And I agree, a pretty terrific performance. Right. And so he's kind of like the Virgil to Craig's Dante. He's going to guide him through and like introduce him to this new world and who all the different people around are and like what's quote unquote wrong with everybody. But in this role, Bobby is hesitant to like reveal anything about himself. And so this was telling me, okay, at some point, Bobby's going to go really, really nuts. Like whatever is up with Bobby, that's that's the big reveal that's coming later. Yeah, he you definitely are set up for him to have a meltdown at some point for sure. It's interesting. Bobby gets involved with like uh, three subplots or something in this story. And in the book, that's like three different characters. Oh, so he's kind of emerging of different characters in the book. Although those characters actually do still appear. They just do a lot less in the movie. Well, it's like how in the Magic School Bus, you know, in the books, she's got a whole normal sized class of students. But for the TV show, they got to boil that down to like six people. Yeah, it's like eight kids or something. Yeah. A couple of other noteworthy patients. We we do get to meet a pretty big ensemble, probably around 10 or so. We, we get to learn the name of and learn a few characteristics of and spend a couple scenes with, if not exclusively with them, but in group settings with them. Um, but another big one is Noelle. So she is the love interest of the story. She is played by Emma Roberts, who we saw in... Scream 4 previously. She has these scars on her face and also scars on her wrists. The movie doesn't really describe the scars on the face or give any context for it, but that's kind of like her main thing in the book. And in the book, it works better as a metaphor of like your pain on the outside versus your pain on the inside and kind of using that as a a lens for that. But here she's just the mysterious wrist cutter, Emma Roberts. Have you seen her in, in much else, Brian? Oh, yeah. She might be my favorite Emma. <laughs> There's a few of them. Yeah. So what else have I seen her in? She is in the stable of American Horror Story actors. So she's got pretty big parts in Coven and uh, I think in Freak Show. So she's she's part of that group. Man, I would have to pull up the filmography specifically. But yeah, I think she's pretty good mm-hmm. what, what about you oh i mean i've always liked her but in part because i've always found her very attractive and she's about my age yeah she's super hot yeah yeah another person that craig meets is muktada who is his roommate here and 
uh, Muktada is definitely the person that we see who's deepest into bad mental health and depression. And he kind of stays in his bed all day. And we, we meet a bunch of others in varying states. There's this one guy who always says, it'll come to you. And oh, one thing that has not aged well is there is a quote unquote tranny. <laughs> I would say the depiction of uh, this character would definitely be considered transphobic in 2021. It comes from a place of ignorance, not hate, I would say. Um, the book is, has this as well. Like, I don't think fairly privileged white boys like Ned Vizzini really knew how to articulately discuss the, the issues of uh, being transgender. So it definitely comes off tone deaf here. But at the same time, you know, it's it's pretty wild just how quickly discussion on the topic has changed in 10 years. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, totally. A couple thoughts on this cast of characters just based on and, and in comparison to my own experience when I was in the situation working at the facility that I was at there seemed to be a lot more schizophrenics than represented here the it'll come to you guy is the only one who's described as being schizophrenic but there was like a lot of shouting and a whole lot more swearing than is depicted in this film oh wow yeah this is PG-13 I think so I mean, honestly, it might border on PG. I think there's like some, a few sex jokes and and not too much beyond that. But yeah, it's uh, definitely not a lot of curse words here. I can see that, honestly. They had a lot of like big signs on the walls with the rules of what you could and couldn't do. Mm -hmm. And just bearing in mind that this is like a youthful love story against a mental health hospital backdrop. Like one of the biggest rules was no touching. It's like, stay in your own area, keep your hands to yourself, only talk and interact with other patients in the common rooms. It's like, nobody's allowed in anybody else's room. Uh, there's a couple times in here where, like, they're running around playfully. Like, that wouldn't fly. <laughs> no, Nobody's running at, at these places. Right. If somebody's running, that's a problem. Right. I would say one kind of overall implausible and kind of to use this word again, tone deaf thing about this movie is that it it often plays like Hogwarts for head cases. Like it's a special magical place where you get to be the special person and discover things about yourself. And I think some of that clicks with like escaping the stress of day to day life. That's part of the theme of the story. But also it's a little bit too wish fulfillment -y, magic wonderland -y. and I know that the filmmakers were really trying to like balance that, like not make it too dark. And I think there is something to like not having mental illness be the one thing that defines its characters, but it is the theme here. So like, I don't know when it got a little uh, whimsical leaned into its quirkiness. It definitely felt inauthentic. So I, what you're saying resonates with me, Brian. Mm -hmm. Just two other quick things. It made me think of the arrested development scenes where Jeffrey Tambor is in prison and people will go to visit him. And inevitably in every one of those scenes, they'll like get close to touching each other. And the guards will say, no touching, no touching. And then like Jeffrey Tambor holds up his hands, no touching. And so that's, I wanted somebody to yell that at uh, Craig and Emma. Yeah. No touching. It's, it's a, it's a good gag. Yeah. But then the, also, when I was there, the only um, young 
woman patient that I noticed mentioned that she was there for a suicide attempt. So mm. like that at least is, is realistic that there are young, young people who end up at these facilities for that reason. Right. That seemed plausible to me. Around this point, we get a flashback into kind of what led up to Craig being in this mental health state. And this is a part of the story that actually really clicked with me. And that is that Craig basically is a normal dude, but in a high pressure academic environment where things are just really not working for him. Like he's feeling numbed and overwhelmed by all of it. And it's kind of the stress just keeps piling on. Brian, we went to one of the most competitive high academic magnet schools in the state and I think even in the country. Weirdly, I didn't get too much of that at high school, but in college, I felt a lot of what Craig describes here about how it just felt like there was a constant pressure on you and you just felt like you couldn't escape it. That's interesting. I felt a lot less pressure in college compared to high school. Interesting, yeah. But even in high school, I wasn't feeling necessarily what he's talking about. Although, I almost felt like it was a shout out to our high school because he was talking about how he goes to this magnet school that you got to test into. Uh, he does mention that it's in New York. He gave it some fictional name, but immediately I was like, oh, that's Stuyvesant, which is pretty much like the other TJ. It's like the, the TJ that's further away uh, because we, we went to a, a school called Thomas Jefferson that was a, a magnet high school. And whenever there were like charts in magazines of what are the top high schools, uh, TJ would be on there and Stuyvesant would be on there. So I, I knew where he was talking about. And indeed, upon cursory research, Ned Vizzini himself went to Stuyvesant. So this is a, a Stuyvesant stand in. Right. Yeah, he, he went there and he's written about going there when he actually first got published in might have been Village Voice. It might have been one of the like hip New York magazines by writing in essays when he was in high school and he collected them into a book I've read part of called Teen Angst. Nah, it's like, nah, teen angst. Nah, uh, so that was the first book he ever published, which was essays he wrote in high school for whatever magazine it was he wrote for uh, Ned Vizzini. Oh, yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because that was another thing I learned that like his first exposure to publishing was Ned Vicini got an award in the Scholastic Writing Awards, which is a yearly event that happens where they like glean the country for the best high school writing. And then if you are recognized, you get something called a gold key and you get considered then on a higher level and there's like another round of the competition at the national level and at the national level he got an honorary mention or honorable mention i actually got a silver medal so i made it to a higher level than ned Vizzini in this competition not the same year wow uh his was like 96 mine was 2005 but when i was a freshman in high school i wrote an essay that my teacher sent to this competition and I got my gold key and then later found out that I'd gotten recognized at the national level and I went to the awards ceremony. We're going to talk about this more next week too. So you don't need every detail here, but that stood out to me reading that. I'm really excited to hear more about that. Cause that is, that's a cool thing. Congratulations on doing that. 
Thank you. Even if it was twenty, you know, almost twenty years ago at this point. Yeah, well, we'll be talking about that. It was kind of all downhill from there. So, in some ways, I kid, but we'll 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 talk about it. Maybe maybe Vizzini experienced some of that. I'll let. You, yeah, I, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing more about it. Uh, another thing we learn about him that stresses him out is that he has a very disappointing social life. He pines for Nia. Is it Nia or Mia? I think I got to mix up three times. I don't know. It's Nia. I had subtitles on and just to confirm, it is the same in the book. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. So Nia, N-I-A. And played by Zoe Kravitz, who this was an early role for her, but she has kind of become a pretty popular movie star recently. She's been in some of the Marvels and she's going to be Catwoman in the new Robert Pattinson Batman movie coming out oh, interesting. in a month. So I think she's she's on the up and up. I, I kind of get why she's cast. She definitely has this energy of something kind of ex- exciting and uh, intoxicating about her. But I, I never really felt like it connected into a real character. I think her casting doesn't quite work overall. But I mean, it seems like she's just kind of there to be good looking. It's like she dates the friend of Craig and Craig is jealous. And then later on, he has a shot with her. Yeah. And uh, Craig's best friend, I think his name is Aaron. He is played by Thomas Mann, who hasn't been in all that many things, but uh, he starred in the young adult adaptation Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, which came out around the same time as uh, The Fault in Our Stars, but has a different tone, but is still a cancer drama with elements of comedy. I I don't think I'm going to pick that. It would be an interesting one to talk about, but... Um, I think some of the things I would say about it would be similar to some of the things I'm going to say about this, where it, I'm not sure it has control of its tone in the way it needs to. But that's another interesting one that I certainly liked at the time. So My brother would be a good one to talk to in this month, because at some point when he was in, I think, high school, he decided to read like the Wikipedia list of coming of age stories. And then tried to read or watch like everything on the list. So oh, wow. That's impressive. You might have some good company talking to him. He's one who like showed me at least that he was reading all the John Green books and, and me and Earl and the, the dying girl. He's a little more steeped in the culture than I am. Yeah, that would be. I bet we've read a lot of the same stuff because I've read many and watched many in that genre as already discussed here today. So the the head a uh, psych psychiatrist i guess if you're the doctor your psychiatrist of the ward is dr minerva played by viola davis um someone else who i think went on to bigger parts after this i didn't really remember her being that good but i thought she was really good she really felt like a real ass psychiatrist who would be at a place like this and it just grounds a lot of it with some of the better scenes in the movie where she's having these conversations with craig where Craig's talking about all these ways that he has felt the pressure and, and stuff. Um, but I, I thought she was good in this for sure. Yeah. I bought it that she knew what she was talking about. The, this ward that she leads, uh, some of the things that Craig and the others have to do, it's all these psych ward activities. And as he kind of goes through them in these five days, he, he gets closer and closer to all the different patients, you know, Bobby and Noel and some of the others, there's this guy named humble, um, who's kind of goofy is there for comic relief, but some of these activities, so they have some group therapy discussion. And this is one time that 
Craig connects with Bobby because he offers to let Bobby borrow one of his dad's shirts. It's funny in the book, the way they're described, Bobby is about the same size as Craig. But here, that is very much not true. So in the book, he gives him one of his shirts, but that would not have worked with Keir Gilchrist, who's this skinny guy, and then Zach Galifianakis, who's a bigger fella. Yeah, I felt a lot for Zach Galifianakis' character here because he's going to do an interview, almost like a job interview, except it's to go to a group home. Like, he's going to get discharged from the facility that he's at, but he's still going to need help on the outside. So he's trying to get into this community living situation so as to not be homeless. Right. It's, it's pretty moving. Honestly, he's, it's like this thing that almost feels like something that, you know, someone like Craig would take for granted, like a place to live and have some stability. And he's just like desperate to get it. And you can feel his pressure at trying to do it. Oh, totally. It's kind of like a mirror to Craig, but like, kind of help giving Craig some perspective on like the the spectrum of challenges that people can face in life. For sure. There's a conversation they have late in the movie where Zach Galifianakis, Bobby, says, Craig, you haven't screwed your life up. He's like, my life, my life, that's what's screwed up. Muktada's life is screwed up. Your life isn't screwed up. You've still got time to get back on whatever track you want to be on yeah and and we learn that he is semi-estranged from a daughter who i think they say is like seven or eight or nine or something like that and is clearly not in a good place with with the mom we see them fighting at one point through a, a window but yeah uh, this is kind of where we get some of the meat of bobby's character development who honestly gets maybe the most character development of any character in this movie the, the zach alfanakis character and then when he has the interview, he thinks it goes badly, and he like has, that's when we get the meltdown. Did the meltdown of his match your expectation? <laughs> or was it smaller or bigger than you expected? It was a little smaller. I thought he was going to like do something violent. He does lash out, but it's like he trashes the room. Right. Just the, the way that it was set up, I almost thought it was going to be like in um, that movie Split with James McAvoy where it's like he has all these different personalities that you meet, but, oh, there's the personality we don't talk about. And then finally that one comes out and it's like crazy to the point that he's almost like a superhuman in that personality. Interesting. Um, so I was waiting for something like that uh, or like Hannibal Lecter or something, just something totally off the wall and scary. Uh, and it is it is a little frightening because he's been kind of our host and our 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 introduction to that world. Right. So that when he, he does flip out, it's pretty dark and chilling. Um, but really he just like throws a bookcase over or something. Yeah. I, th I thought it seemed like a very real ish meltdown and it is scary. Cause he goes from like being the friendly guy, cracking sarcastic quips. We've seen moments of that. And then he just kind of loses it for like 60 seconds. Um, I remember the first time I saw that being kind of blown away. I, I don't think I was quite, they're ready for it at the same way that you were. But yeah, it was, uh, it's a good bit of acting. No, I, I think um, Galifianakis did a great job. Yeah, really showed his range in this film. A couple other kind of important things that happen on this these psych ward activities. There's arts and crafts time, which really is just like, the way that it's presented is basically like what you would have at a summer camp where it's, here's a whole bunch of arts and crafts, just do something creative as long as you do something. And 
Craig, his thing is he draws brain maps. So this gets a lot more definition in the, the novel, like the way it kind of connects to different aspects of his, his past. But he's always been fascinated with maps and he loved drawing maps when he was a kid. And so now he kind of reconnects with that and uses it as a way to try and uh, imagine some order in his own brain, I guess. Yeah, there's a lot of times in this movie where it kind of breaks up into little stylized segments and they'll just like do some new artistic thing for a little while, for like a minute or two. This was the one I liked the most when he starts doing the drawing and it goes into this like animated sequence where the map is getting made and it's like a 3D cityscape that's just got a couple colors to it. And I, I thought it was cool. Abstraction. Yeah. No, I like this one. And I'm glad you brought up the different kind of form breaking elements of this film. I think they're a mixed bag. The one that really did not work for me is like he imagines himself on VH1 and is like wearing chains and stuff. And like he's a rapper or something. Some of them are a little too quirky like that for me. Um, mm -hmm. I like this one. There's another one where it's he imagines the time before and it's like this really hazy golden shot of him and Thomas Mann walking around a pier. And I like the way that that kind of captured the emotional texture of the quote unquote before time when things were easy and in like this uh, nostalgic lens, basically. Another one, since you brought those up, comes during another one of these group therapy sessions, which is music time. So Craig ends up being pulled in to do the vocals for this music time. And they end up singing Under Pressure, which I do not think would make actually a good song for like a group of people to perform together when they're like have maracas and, and like really basic instruments. And it's like a duet and stuff. But yeah, very hard song for a lot of people to sing. So a couple thoughts about this. And it actually cuts away from that to a imagined version of these people in the psych ward, like dressed up as rock stars singing it. And they're just lip syncing. And we hear the original song for, for most of the duration. Oh, really? Is, is it the original audio? I wasn't sure. Oh, yeah. No, it, it's Queen and it's it's David Bowie. It's the original. OK, because for whatever reason, I could understand it way better here than any previous time i've heard the song and maybe it's just because i had subtitles on well and also you're seeing the lips moving as part of it too. and i'm seeing the lips moving i guess that's true uh because normally i don't have any idea what they're saying until they get to under pressure right like i couldn't have told you any other lyrics from the song i think ice ice baby is way better <laughs> oh man i vehemently disagree but that's fine i know that you like it when you can hear the words clearly that's something you've mentioned that's important to you which definitely ice ice baby he says the words very clearly straight to the point to the point no faking cooking mcs like a pound of bacon so when i first saw this one in 2010 this was the scene that blew my mind and i still really love this scene the thing i love about it is first of all it's just cool and i i'm a sucker for singing along to songs i know in the movie randomly breaking out into song it almost always works for me uh one thing i like about this in particular is that to me, there's something cathartic about singing music and like blasting music and singing along with it and being a part of that. And this captured the emotion of that for me, of, of the catharsis of singing it. Like one of my distinct memories from college is my freshman year. Obviously, I lived in a dorm 
I didn't have a car. I walked everywhere. Like I realized that I hadn't actually sung out loud in months because there was really was not much opportunity to. And then so when I got home and was like driving around on one of the breaks and just in my room when I didn't have a roommate and could sing loud at the top of my lungs, like it really was emotionally healing to do that. It's one of the only times I've really felt that like acute catharsis before. So this was the scene that I kind of most remembered from the first time I saw it, this under pressure. That is interesting. Like this scene took me out of it a bit. Just an example of it being zany. And it almost felt like the end of School of Rock. Like that's the costumes that they've got on. Just very over the top. Uh, But I, I like what you said about the catharsis of performing music. The the couple of weeks that I was working at the facility, I saw them do craft time. I did not witness a music practice like this. One thing I actually did a Wikipedia correction, because one thing Wikipedia said is that the music instructor who resembles Ned Vizzini, he's kind of a, a youngish white guy with slightly wavy hair like Ned Vizzini was, that he was it was a cameo for him. But in fact, it is not. Ned Vizzini went out of his way to not cameo in the film. So I had to remove that reference in Wikipedia. I found another source saying that it definitely was not him. So you're doing a good service. So kind of as he's here, a couple other things that happen. Uh, One is that some people from his life come and visit him to varying levels of awkwardness. He sees his family some. Nia comes and she seems kind of seduced by the the danger of someone with mental health uh, problems. And I think one thing this movie walks a fine line on, but ultimately lands positively is not romanticizing mental health. It does romanticize the experience in some ways of being here, but not the mental health problems themselves. And I think it does demonize people who romanticize suicidal tendencies and mental health problems to some extent, because Nia is kind of like playing that up. And then when she sees what it's really like with like a freaking out Muktada and stress vomiting and stuff, she freaks out and runs away. Right. It's, it's not sexy. Uh, Although I, I thought it was kind of funny that like suddenly he's famous at the start. He's all worried that people are going to find out where he is. But then once they do, it's like, Oh, that's exciting. Right. Yeah. No, that's kind of funny. It's kind of clever and a irony of sorts. And this is happening right around the time that uh, Craig is really starting to hit it off with Noel. So that's the Emma Roberts character. They do this little thing that I always liked, although I watching it again, it was not quite as romantic and fun as I as I recalled. But the question game, they get to know each other by having a conversation where each they always have to end with a question for the other to answer when they exchange stuff. And it's like a little flirty fun game that they play. And I mean, could you get any luckier than that the only girl your age on the ward and and you be the only guy that age is Emma Roberts? <laughs> yeah, that is something that rings kind of inauthentic to me, for sure. And he, uh, Ned Vizzini did say that lots of very specific things are reflective of very specific things that happened to him when he was there. But the love triangle aspect, the romance aspect was totally invented. Because he thought that the story kind of needed one more hook on it. So that being inauthentic, I think, is uh, not too much of a surprise. I will say the book does it a little bit better and finds, I mean, it's still about the guy and kind of his perspective of the world. Like she's not a deep character in the book either. But um, 
their conversations and the way that they relate to each other relate to the movies or the story's themes a little bit more. So, okay. Than this one, which just feels like a teen romance for the sake of a teen romance. Um, and one kind of semi iconic thing to me is after they have that blow up, when Noel sees Nia come in, uh, is she wears this shirt, this handmade t-shirt that says, I hate boys on it, which I liked. I would wear an, I hate boys t-shirt. Uh, I'm taking notes for next Christmas. <laughs> uh, so at this point, we're close to the end of the week. Craig is about to to be discharged. He does reconnect with Noel, and they kind of get a romantic escape. They use the thing that, that Bobby did at the beginning, and then we saw one other time, which is if you put on scrubs, apparently everybody just assumes you're a nurse or a doctor and you can have free roam of the whole hospital, like playing hooky. I'm imagining this would not fly at the place that you visited. No. there. So the first thing I noticed, there's a big sign on the big door that says elopement risk. Because I guess they don't want to call it escape. But uh, w one of the days there was an elopement attempt where somebody rushed my coworker. Oh my gosh. As he was like going out the door and he had to kind of wrangle him back in. Uh, so, so who knows? Maybe there are people who get away with this uh, element of disguise that Zach Galifianakis has figured out. But I, I kind of hope that there aren't. It seems risky for everyone involved. Right. Yeah. Another thing we learn around now is that Bobby wasn't, in, in fact, accepted into his group home. So he gets a a happyish ending here. He he's going to be discharged around the same time too, and go to that that group home. And part due to Craig supporting him, giving him a shirt, helping him prep for the interview, etc. So, and then another thing is the the people in the the ward had frequently talked about a pizza party, but none of these people have money, and you need money to buy pizza. And so Craig, obviously in a state of financial privilege relative to many of them, hosts a pizza party for the ward as his kind of farewell present, and he gets some Egyptian music for Muktada. So Muktada rises from the bed, and even though he's not better, at least gets to dance a little bit and enjoy the pizza party. Yeah, I like this a lot. And this kind of turned a climactic scene from Cuckoo's Nest on its head. Because uh, that story, for those who are unfamiliar, there's kind of an idiosyncratic guy who gets committed to an asylum, uh, a psychiatric ward, and he starts to, like, inspire the patients to acts of, like, civil disobedience and stir stirs things up. And in the movie, this is Jack Nicholson and... So he's, I think at one point he does sneak them out and they like go fishing or something. And he's just kind of raising morale and, and raising independent thought. And at the climax of the story, he gets some people to smuggle in alcohol and prostitutes and stuff. And everybody has a party on what I think is going to, it's ostensibly supposed to be his last night, because I think the final act is that somebody's going to smuggle him out. But then everybody gets so drunk and wasted that he ultimately does not get out and <laughs> ends up having very dark. It, it almost would work as like a violent ends pairing. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Where things do not work out well for, for those <laughs> characters who set up this party for everybody to have a moment of uh, happiness and freedom. Levity, yeah. Uh, but but here it works out. Yeah, that's right. 
I mean, to me, it leans a little too hard on here comes Magic Craig solving the problems of everyone here. Like, again, Hogwarts for headcases. Here's the the magic chosen one going to make everyone feel better. It's a little bit of that. Like, I think it, it, it does acknowledge that these people aren't better and that these people are still in dark places. But it's at least a feel good moment. Like you I think it's important that you get moments of joy for these characters. It adds like a little bit of depth. They're not just people suffering from mental illness. They can enjoy things, too. So, yeah, they all get a moment of humanity. Yeah. So the movie ends with Craig checking out of the hospital. He's the local hero. Everybody thanks him, says goodbye. Now, one thing that the book has that the movie doesn't quite have is uh, emphasizing that Vizzini's version of depression manifests itself as lethargy and kind of nothingness, which makes the ending a, a little bit more poignant in the sense that the way that it goes out is with this monologue of sped up, boom, 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 things that he was thinking and things that he wants to do. And that's kind of a contrast to the lethargy and nothingness that he felt at, towards the beginning of the story. Um, and some of the things he talks about there, the kind of one of the inciting things was this summer school application. He tears it up. He's going to go do more art, more mind maps. He's going to go on dates with Emma Roberts. And then the last two things he says he's going to do are breathe and live. And then we get a shot of him lazily riding his bike in a carefree way, which kind of mirrors how he rode the bike to the hospital at the very beginning. So, yeah, he's going to go stick it to the man and talk down Jim Gaffigan. <laughs> yeah. In the book, he it makes clear that he's going to transfer away from his school to a place that allows him to explore his artistic side a little bit. Yeah, there's a lot of focus on that he's going to express himself through art. Yeah. And and really pursue that as a venue. So this this was another moment that had me thinking of Dead Poets Society cuz in that movie we had the character who decides he wants to go be an actor against his father's wishes. And, and again, that ended darkly. Right. Like the father says, oh, no, you're not going to do that. Yeah. And I, I think we're to hope that it works out better for Craig here, but that's certainly true. I'll also say, and this is something that you kind of offhandedly mentioned to me too, in the, our chat. So credit to you on this. There's a very long history of artists who use their art to help them cope, but also like it's not a magic bullet for those people. Right. The example that I was talking about earlier today off mic was Vincent Van Gogh. That's right. who I was thinking of. Classic example of the skilled painter who is nevertheless tortured. And he ultimately, at least the consensus is that he killed himself, though there are some conspiracy theorists that think other things. But that's that's kind of the uh, almost romanticized telling of the story interesting yeah and i mean i thought of kurt cobain and so many other musicians and artists who are great and then uh kill themselves i mean even uh even vizzini and even uh robin williams that we were talking about you know art is not a cure-all but it probably does help a lot of people in terms of being an outlet for for some of those things. right you got to have something to do I hit most of the big differences between the book and the movie as we went along. I will say the book does not intersperse the flashbacks. It op The first third of a book is like everything leading up to the night that he thinks he's going to kill himself. And I wrote in a review on earnthis.net 
that I thought that that first third was really slow. When I read it this time, I was the opposite. I thought that provided a lot of really necessary context on how a quote unquote normal person could be at a state of mental health that's so toxic that one could feel like they could do that. And I think the movie suffered a little bit by not really letting you feel that despair, that crushing sense of pressure the way that the book does. Like the book has a lot more of how he meets Aaron and how he gets into the school and stuff. So I I kind of missed that watching the movie this time. And like I mentioned, the, the book also, it, it follows largely the same beats, but it's got some slightly different arrangement of characters. So I do think I like the book more than the movie at this point. I wasn't sure which one I was going to like more when I approached it this time, but I think the book just has some of the necessary depth and context and more of like the discussion with the psychologist or the psychiatrist to provide like more insight into the mental health aspects than than the movie does. And it's not it's not quite as quirky, although it still has some quirk and, and uh, silliness to it. But yeah. So, Brian, good things and not so good things. We talked about Zach Galifianakis as a good thing. Anything you wanted to add on that front? Yeah, I'll second that Zach Galifianakis is a shining part of this movie. I think he's really good here. It's the best performance I've seen him give. I bought it when it was dark and I bought it when it was quirky. And I thought he was a, a good pull to have him in the film. And I think the ensemble as a whole, individuals may be stronger or weaker, but I, I like this group of people. Yeah, I agree. I, I really enjoy spending time with them. And I think that is an interesting thing to feel about people at a place like this. I was kind of reckoning with that. It's been a long time since I've seen Cuckoo's Nest too, And I remember there's some of that too, where you like, you feel like you want to hang out with these people some more, but they're there because they're like having trouble functioning as people. So I don't know. Um, but no, I agree. I, I like the ensemble overall for sure. And, and I really like in general, I, I think this book was important in it, maybe not like the touchstone, but being a great way of capturing the way that quote unquote normal people, pr people in a state of privilege, people who seem to be thriving can severely suffer from uh, mental health issues. Yeah, I agree. It made us relate to them, it presented them in a relatable way. And Overall, fairly realistic presentation, I would say, based on my very limited experience, other than, like I said, uh, made a little PG. Right. Also, to nitpick, there were more right angles in the ward presented here. Like, where I was, the phone was in this box that had all the corners shaved to, like, 45-degree angles huh. uh, so that you couldn't put a noose around it basically so anything that you could form a, a tourniquet or, or something to try to hang yourself with wow yeah uh but here in the movie it was just a like a payphone on the wall like a box but where i was they didn't they didn't have anything that was at an angle uh just a flat surface like that gotcha any other good things you wanted to call out uh the stylistic bits where it would change format some of those i liked some of them felt like distractions to me so it was a mixed bag with regard to that yeah agreed on that for sure like i i quite liked the bit with the maps beyond that though 
I didn't tend to like the departures in tone that would come at those times. Right. This is another thing that somewhat tangential. I loved a lot of the 2010 era, like specificity, especially when they were talking about like different bands and some of the fashion things that brought me back. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember when everybody was talking about Vampire Weekend. Oh, yeah. Broken social scene. Okay. Oh, I guess people did wear jorts on top of leggings. I don't know. So let's talk real quickly a couple of not so good things. Again, I I have already hit most of them. Um, I kind of like Keir Gilchrist as a presence in general, but I don't know if he was the right person for this role. I kind of went back and forth on it. I feel like he could have used a little more edge for someone who we're supposed to believe is really suffering. But he's not he's not terrible. He's he's pretty good. And then I do think that the tone this it really bothered me how it sometimes just felt too quirky and whimsical for the seriousness of the setting and the situation. So did you have any other not so good things you wanted to mention? No, I think I pretty much hit what I was thinking of. One point I'll make about Cure Gilchrist he almost works as like a blank slate. He's like the control, you know, mm. he's there to kind of be like your window into this world. It's like, what would it be like if I was suddenly in this situation? I think that's a really good point. And I think it reiterates that part of the intent of this story is maybe not wish fulfillment, but like making it easy to imagine yourself in the scenario where you can help these people and, make out with Emma Roberts and have this therapeutic experience, you know? So, yeah. Well, that ends my list as well. So I am ready to answer the question about whether or not this movie is good. Did you have anything you wanted to add before we move to, is it good, Brian? No, let's do it. Sounds good. Is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale ranging from very not good, a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, Tour de Good. That is an eight out of eight. So Brian, is It's Kind of a Funny Story from 2010 good? So since you've visited and revisited this story so many times, I'm interested to see what you're ultimately going to say about the film. This might have been the quickest that I watched a movie in a given week. Like, as soon as we finished recording, because we recorded on a Sunday morning last time. So I had, like, a whole day ahead of me that normally I, you know, maybe we'd record later in the day. And so I just felt like I had time on my hands. I think I went and watched the movie right away. So it's, like, already a little... I've I've just kind of, like, distanced myself more from the movie than in, in some weeks. And there were times when I was really thinking this is a very good movie a six out of eight because we we do rate on an eight point scale since then i've kind of sat with my memories of it and my perceptions i i think it's like a high five for me it's a good verging toward the higher end because i do really like zach galifianakis's performance and i it made me think about things you know my own experience kind of my own anxieties about what could lead to having to be in a a place like this and and what would it be like undergoing treatment there. 
so it is it's an impactful film but it's an imperfect film the quirkiness really draws me out at times i i'm not as big of a david bowie fan maybe like the the break to that song especially i don't know it, it drew me out it's like now suddenly we're gonna have a music video for three minutes so i think that ultimately is where i land a high five and maybe this is something that I revisit later on, because I feel like I've given a lot of things lately fives. This is towards the better end of that rating. Where does it fall for you, Dan? I really was a pendulum on this one, thinking about what I was going to give it. Um, obviously, it's a story that in a movie that has been important to me. I do think the personal significance outweighs the quality of the film for me, like if I were just rating it on meaningfulness to me, it would probably be like verging on an eight, but I don't think this is a masterpiece. And to be quite honest, as I was watching through a lot of it, especially some of the parts where it was too quirky for me, where the tone felt off, where it felt like it was being cute and wish fulfillmenty, and giving Emma Roberts a really flat character and all that. I was even wondering if this movie was even good. I was like, is this actually a good movie? Is this something that I could say with a straight face is a good movie? Because it does a lot of things that bother me. I mean, I gave Dead Poets Society a four out of eight, not for exactly the same reasons. That one I thought took itself a little too seriously, whereas this one's the opposite problem. But some of the ways that it's kind of didactic are still there. And I honestly was thinking about giving this a four for a while, but... I, too, am going to end up giving it a 5 out of 8. I'm going to say that this is a good movie. That's our 5 out of 8. Because when I think about the things I like about it, the way that it it does talk about mental health in, in a certain way and give us an excellent Zach Galifianakis performance, and even I like some of the Flight of Fancy stuff and just the cast chemistry. It's, it's an easy watch, and I think for some people it'll really resonate. I think for some people it'll really great in a negative way. And some people might even find some of the depiction offensive of the way uh, parts of it, how it kind of quirkifies mental health, serious suicidal tendencies. I will say it never goes out into romanticizing them and like making that seem like uh, an appealing way that one should go out or anything like that. So I don't know, kind of stewing on all those things and just adding in my personal fondness for it and the resonance I felt with it and how it, felt like some of the things that its character felt are things that I had felt in a way that I simply haven't seen anywhere else or not in the same way. That, to me, put it over the line for good. So I'm probably at a lowish, midish good for It's Kind of a Funny Story 2010, but still a, a movie that was very important to me and, and one that I still feel a fondness for that exceeds that five. So, All right. The book, I would put even a point or two above that as well. So there you go. So we have some concordant. Yeah. So uh, Brian, Young Adult Month, off to a start. Very personal start, I would say. I'll be interested to see if the rest of these, we talk about ourselves quite so much. But uh, I'm, I'm curious to hear what our, our next selection is going to be. Sure. Well, we, we just might be continuing that theme of introspection. One final question before we move on from this week's film. Was it a funny story? <laughs> a lot of review. I read a lot of re contemporary reviews and a lot of them made a play on that. They would say, yeah, it kind of is as like the t subtitle or it's definitely not. So this only got like a 50 something percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So it 
did not crack fresh. I would say there's enough funny things that you could say it is kind of funny, but I don't know if the story itself is ultimately funny. So what do you think? Yeah, I didn't have a lot of belly laughs with this one, although I guess I'll defend the title because I can see it being what Craig says when somebody asks him about it later. Yeah. You know, he shows up back at school. Where were you? Oh, it's kind of a funny story. Yeah, so. exactly. All right. I can I can accept that. I have in my head sort of like a spectrum ranking of apt titles to completely unfitting titles. I think this one lands somewhere in the middle. Yeah, slightly on the unfitting side in that it doesn't really tell you much about the story itself. Right. It's It's better, though, than it happened one night. I agree with that which took place over multiple nights and days <laughs> and more than one thing happened. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. But the next movie that we're going to be talking about based on a young adult book is indeed a Disney channel original movie. This one comes to us from 2006. It's called read it and weep. It's about a freshman high school girl who writes a book that becomes a bestseller and the fallout from that. And as I said, I had some experience getting some, a little bit of experience having some of my writing published when I was in high school, right around the time this movie came out on TV, which is also when I was in high school. This was the same year as High School Musical. So uh, we're going to be right back into our classic, comfortable decom territory that I am so fond of. Nice. I've never heard of this one. So this will be a fresh one for me. Do you know the name of the book off the top of your head? It's a little verbose. It's something like How My Personal Private Journal Became a Bestseller. Oh, man. Okay. They jazzed it up a bit. Uh, they made it, made it more concise uh, for the film. Well, I'll, I'll seek it out. No guarantees, but I will try to keep up the trend of, of letting this month be an excuse for me to get back into books. And yeah, so I guess we'll be going yam again next week, Brian going yam <laughs> that's uh, there finally something we can shout in the vein of circus month so i'm ready we're going yam yeah going yam <laughs> all right brian have a good evening and i'll see you next week you too dan thanks for listening guys thanks listeners